Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Footmarks podcast. I'm your host, Behram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. And with me, of course, is Jared Kimber. You can find him everywhere. And the premise of this episode in particular is the baseball misconception. Now, Jared, whenever someone speaks about baseball, you always have that one person who comes in and says that, oh, we've seen this before. And they're going to quote Sevag or Gilchrist. They're going to call it Sevag ball or Gilchrist ball. And whilst that notion is flawed on its own, and we'll get to that in a bit, you mentioned in your piece that if you're going to go down that route, you might as well call it Trumper ball because the OG of attacking cricket in Test cricket is Victor Trumper, who was an Australian who made his debut in 1899. And amongst batters who have scored a minimum of 3,000 test runs, his average, or sorry, strike rate is still the ninth best, which I think is remarkable. So yeah, just enlighten us on this crazy, crazy cricketer. Yeah, I think, so Victor Trumper comes out of Sydney at that, he's got two really, really important skills. He comes out of Sydney just as the liquid manure uh, phase of cricket is is finishing up. <laughs> and so batters are feeling more confident to play their shots. So without going into that, because I've probably done a million videos on it before, but essentially cricket is a bowler's game right up until about 1890. And then it becomes mm-hmm. a batter's game. That's why when you look at W. Grace's numbers, you're like, why is everyone going mad about a guy who averages like 35? It's like, because everyone else is averaging, <laughs> you know, 17 or 20. Mm. And Trumper comes out of that, and at that stage, Grace had opened up footwork, and Ranji opens up leg side play. And mm. what what Trumper basically does is, it's very, I would assume, and we don't have a, enough footage of him to really be sure, but you can see it. There's a great series of photos that was done. They were staged photos. You would might have seen mm. the one with the big back lift. Uh, of Trumper. Mm, maybe not. It's a really famous cricket photo. If you Google Trumper, mm. it's probably one of the first photos you see. That's a staged photo by a photographer. You can actually see mm. that the background is, is, not, is fake. And obviously in those days, they didn't have the cameras to be able to film people out on the ground. But that is a series of photos. And in it, you actually get the keys to what Trumper was, which is Trumper would hit a ball from a length outside off stump over the leg side. And that was revolutionary at that point because essentially mm. what happened at that st- stage is outside of Ranji, who players had got to the point where if the ball was down leg side, they would hit it to leg side. But if you look mm. at footage of Grace, you'll see that Grace doesn't particularly like hitting the ball to leg side. In fact, he's not very good at it. Um, that we, ha- mm. we only have like a handful of balls that he ever faced and they're just throwdowns. But you can actually see he looks fine outside of stump. The minute the ball's at his stumps and he's trying to flick on the leg side, he doesn't have that game. And that's because he didn't, grow up batting to the leg side. And so when Ranji, Ranji's a fascinating figure in all that as well, in that Ranji was afraid of the ball when he was, when he was coming up, you know, and Nepo baby um, had lots of money, got a coach, you know, uh, you know, very similar to, I don't know, Zach Crawley or Sean Masood type Mm. story, right? You know, they worked on him until he became a cricketer. And one of the things they did was of course, um, essentially they stuck him in the crease, right? They put things behind his feet so he couldn't back away. So he had to, come up with a new shot and he came up, comes up with the leg glance. But again, that's still hitting a ball that's already going down the leg side to the leg side, right? And if you bowl a short ball outside leg stump, people would hump it away and that sort of stuff. What hmm. Trumper does is he basically takes the balls from off stump specifically, but also outside off stump, and he whips them across to the leg side. And one of the great photos, you can actually see the ball is well, well, 
the imaginary ball. I'm not sure there was a ball in the photo, but you could see that <laughs> he's closing his wrist and he's hitting over the leg side. And that is now, you know, as it did it, Viv Richards did it, KP did it, Steve Smith did it, right? We've got lots of people who do it now, but it's still not that common for a really top player mm. to do that. And what it did in the trumpet era, of course, is there's no fielders on the leg side because you only got fielders on the leg side for the bad ball, right? If your wicket keeper can't keep or your bowler keeps bowling down leg side or, you know, those sorts of things. And he's just whipping this ball away. You know, I, I, the footage I've seen is probably maybe a little bit more like KP than than um, than Viv Richards, but that kind of style. A bottom hand, mm. whipping the ball away. And because of that, he scores at an incredible rate, right? On top of that, he's yeah. just a powerful guy. He's not very big, but he's got incredible timing. I remember one of my favorite stories is he owned a uh, cricket uh, shop in Sydney and Aubrey Faulkner came over. And you remember, these are there's like three great cricketers in the world. It's, you know, Victor Trumper, um, Aubrey Faulkner and and Sid Barnes. And Aubrey Faulkner is in awe of Viv, Rich uh, Viv Richards, Victor Trumper. And he <laughs> asks for a bat. And so Victor Trumper gives him a bat. And Aubrey Faulkner gets the bat and he goes out and plays. And he's like, oh, God, it's a bad bat. He's giving me a bad bat and he uses it a few times. He's like, oh, I don't know. So he goes back to Victor Trump. He goes, I'm really sorry, but the bat you gave me is not quite great. And Victor Trump is like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he takes it and smashes the ball everywhere with it. <laughs> That's the difference well, between that a guy who can average over 40 in test cricket and what Victor Trump was. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think their batting averages were about the same in test cricket. But the impact. So, so I think there's another game where Aubrey Faulkner makes 200 and Victor Trumper just comes out and smashes like 169 of 168 balls or something like that. Like just mm -hmm. things that just didn't happen in test cricket. It wasn't how it was played. People were still getting used to, you know, the ball bouncing more and all these other things and the pitches getting better. And Victor Trumper is explosive. There's a game that I think it might be a Sydney club game where he breaks some sort of world record for the fastest scoring ever, but he does it. In, and it's, I think it's like runs per minute he breaks in this game. I, I can't mm. remember the full details. So I didn't look it up for this particular piece. But I remember in it, every time you hit a six, you had to swap ends, a bit like backyard cricket, right? Mm. It was a really weird <laughs> sort of rule that they had. And he was still scoring quicker than anyone else did. And there's another game where <laughs> a guy in Sydney club cricket switches teams and he said, oh, when I used to bowl to Trumper in the nets, I used to destroy him. And so Trumper, who's a very mild, you know, humble, you know, hero, especially, you know, coming off grace, um, you know, he was much more in the, you know, Grayson Barnes were the big figures and, and uh, Faulkner and, and um, uh, Faulkner and Trumper were much more humble in, in that sort of way. But when Trumper found out that someone was saying, it, it's a bit like, you know, when you know, in the NBA games, when someone calls themselves the Jordan stopper and Jordan will try and put 50 mm. points on them, that's what Trumper did. <laughs> but the ability to score so quickly was just ab absolutely incredible. And, it, you know, you talked before of his strike rate. We know it's the ninth quickest strike rate in cricket, but we don't know how. It's only from about 1,400 balls, and we know he would have mm. faced more balls than that. So that's probably about half of his career. And also, when I looked it up, it's the, the, the stuff I have, and there are other people who have more. Um, I don't think anyone has all of his uh, strike rate, but I think there are people that have more. But the back half of his career he actually slows down. Well, right, not the back half, the right at the end he slows down because he's just not the player that he used to be. My guess is that mm. that 69 is low and he probably scored around 75 to 80, sort of, sort of Quinton de Kock, um, Saywag, mm -hmm. um, uh, Gilchrist type level of scoring in an era where people were still scoring at strike rates of 20, 25, 30 you know, quite right. You know, uh, there was yeah. a lot of Craig Brathwaite's and Dom Sibley's out there. So to put <laughs> Trumper in there and it's why, w w so Trumper was thought of, even when Bradman came through, Trumper was still thought of by some people as the better bat. And it mm. was because of the explosive nature that he had. Also, the other thing that he had, which was absolutely brilliant was he could score on wet wickets and wet wickets. You mm. go through, uh, I don't know if you saw the video I did uh, from Old Trafford about, uh, in, uh, about teams coming back from 2-0 down in three-test series, right? Um, mm. In that, I was talking about the fact that Bradman basically couldn't score on wickets. Like, it, it just, you know, just wasn't his thing. It wasn't how he batted. He was very much a, a hard wicket player. Whereas Trumper was good mm. on both. Um, and in fact, would practice on wet wickets. He would go out in the middle and he would wet a wicket to practice on it. Now, that is dangerous, <laughs> right? Because the ball is going to come up yeah. at all sorts of angles. It tells you the sort of player he was. But he ends up averaging, I don't know, 42. 243 i'd have to look it up it's it's somewhere mm. low 40s anyway and yet people are yeah. still saying a generation later that he had, you know he was as good as bradman he wasn't right but you can mm. understand why if you saw him in full flight why well, you would have thought to yourself well this is something else 
right? This is something that we haven't ever seen before. And we'd certainly seen powerful players before. We'd seen skillful players before. We'd probably just never seen the two of those things combined into a top-line batter who could score at double the rate of everyone else. Yeah, no, those are some great anecdotes. Anyone who did not know about Victor <laughs> Trumper, they're surely going to be Googling him now. And those are some lovely stories. And even if we look at the English side, right? Same era, pre-World War, another cricketer who debuted in 1899 was... Uh, Gilbert Jessup. And this is a guy who, till this day, holds the record for fastest test 100 by an Englishman, which I think is amazing. Mm. And we've seen other players from England come, you know, throughout the years. Ian Botham is one that comes to mind who used to give it a proper whack. You've got your Flintoffs and your KPs. But clearly, you know, attacking cricket predates baseball by over 100 years. And to imply that it has you know, some sort of crossover. Oh, well, it does have some sort of crossover, but it's the same thing to imply that it's the same thing as baseball in which a team is doing this en masse. Yeah. I think that is a bit ludicrous. Yeah, and I think that's why, I mean, my bigger thing was originally as a historian getting annoyed when, when someone's like, well, Seawag invented attacking batting. I was like, <laughs> I mean, Gilchrist was right there at the same time. So, And then someone else yeah. would say, Gilchrist invented it. And then someone else would say, Viv. And I was like, well, wait a minute. These guys aren't the inventors of baseball. And they also mm-hmm. aren't the inventors of attacking cricket. So Gilbert Jessup is... Yeah. Gilbert Jessup is probably a player that I would say has existed all the way through the game. So I think Trumper was perhaps one, you know, the original sort of attacking top-order player who could make runs mm-hmm. and score very, very quickly. And I think that Gilbert Jessup is probably more, uh, you know, there was, I could name a bunch of them. Um, uh, there's Jimmy Sinclair from South Africa, who was an all-rounder, who gave it a big whack. Uh, George Bonner gave it a big whack. Um, then you've got uh, Gilbert Jessup, Leary Constantine is another one. Um, you know, you probably heard Keith Miller. Garfield Sobers mm-hmm. was probably more a proper batter, but when he wanted to, had that power. Capital Dev, you know, Richard Hadley, you know, Ian Botham, all these. There's a lot of all-rounders and middle-order sort of players who had the ability mm. to just come in and whack the ball and would do it all the way through history. And, again, it's a bit reductionist to, to think that, like, uh, you know, attacking batting starts with um, – with Verinda Sewag, I mean, the, I think one of the more interesting ones from that, from my perspective, is Kapil Dev, because mm. Kapil Dev's strike rate, I think, is what, second or third highest of all time. And you're talking about a guy who played, you know, in the 80s. Um, mm. And you've got Viv Richards, who, Viv Richards is kind of the next level of um, Trumper. Uh, you know, mm. again, well, m- so much faster than everyone else of his generation, but also he was an even better bat than Trump. He averaged more runs um, mm. and had more of an impact than 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 Trumper did. Um, and Don Bradman had a really good strike rate as well. I think Don Bradman's strike rate was 66 or something. So in his era, mm. um, you know, he was, and that's because, you know, he could hit every yeah. ball for a single um, whenever he wanted to. <laughs> you know, he was he was that much better than everyone else. It wasn't that he was attacking in the way that we would see modern attackers. And I, I suppose, mm. the, you know, I picked Gilbert Jessup to point out that if you watch an England game now and, like, Harry Brook is, like, 80 or, you know, 70 balls, so people start to go, oh, he's getting close to Gilbert Jessup's record. But the, the truth is that Gilbert Jessup, even through basketball, has held that record. He even held it through both of them. Or I think he had three of the top... Mm seven um, quicker scoring hundreds of all time. Um, and and th- those players have existed. But I do think there is a fundamental difference between the, you know, uh, Leary Constantine from the West Indies coming in at number seven and whacking the ball everywhere. Um, mm. and, and Viv Richards and Trumper doing it, right? So, the, you know, Capital mm. Dev, it, this is a very weird anecdote, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I was an all-rounder. And I think as mm. an all-rounder, it allowed me to always attack very hard when I when it batted because I knew I was mm. probably going to be a frontline bowler. Worst case scenario, I'm going to bowl three or four overs, probably, you know, on bad days. In the old days, I used to bowl 25 and 30 over spells, right? You know, as a spinner. <laughs> so I knew I was going to be in the game even if I failed with the bat. And if I was going to bat, I was going to bat my way. Well, since I've injured right. my arm, uh, I can barely <laughs> bowl now. And when I do bowl, I, it's... It, I'm in pain and it's horrible. Um, and, you know, as my shoulder st- comes back slowly, maybe I'll be able to bowl properly again. But my batting has completely changed. I'm so – I played in a 20-over game recently and I left the ball. Like, I didn't used to leave a ball <laughs> in 80-over games, like, let alone in 20-over games. And so we do – I think there has to be an understanding that, you know, Kapil Dev or Constantine or Gilbert Jessup and those sorts of guys are a different – you know, both of them and, you know – 
uh, Lance Cairns, you know, Chris Cairns probably as well. Those sort of guys mm-hmm. have a freedom, right, that other batters do not have, right? You know, the whole yeah. Gilchrist thing of Gilchrist, everyone said Gilchrist could have been a specialist, but I, I think in Gilchrist's mind, he knew that that was his optimal because his technique wasn't quite as solid as other players with his kind of record, right? That's why hmm. his average actually starts to slip because eventually people work out, wait a minute, when he's not hitting us for six, we could just, you know, come around the wicket and dry him up a little bit or we can bowl with two gullies and he's going to keep slashing and we might eventually get him out that way. You know, top batters are a little bit different to, to that sort of thing. So there is a freedom there. So again, we have had very attacking players all the way through, but I do think there's a big difference between Trumper, um, Saywag, and uh, Viv Richards compared to some of the other players that were very attacking. But to say that we didn't have players who would come in and whack it, it's just it's just not true. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And you mentioned quite a few names over there of uh, players who had been employing that attacking cricket sort of mindset over the years. Viv Richards kind of stands out though because in his era, he was a cut above and the rate at which he was playing, you could make an argument that he kind of changed cricket forever because everyone who came after him, you know, that was the sort of template that, okay, he's way ahead of his time. So would you say that the impact that Bazball is having at large maybe is somewhat similar to uh, the micro-influence that Viv Richards on his own ha- uh, had uh, on batting as a whole? No, I think Viv Richards is probably more similar to Jeff Thompson or Shane Warne. Mm. Uh, maybe Murali is another one where they have an influence in that I think people start to go, wow, you can put pressure back on. But also mm. there's a certain point where they decide, but we don't have a Viv Richards. Right, so you do start to see players like Kim Hughes come through. Um, you, I'm trying to think of some of the other sort of slightly more dashing players come through, but I think they understand the influence of Viv Richards can have, but also that you know Viv Richards is kind of one of one. Like even Gordon Greenwich, who was quite attacking, is not on that that kind of level, right? So that I don't think I went through it. Oh no, I might have gone through it in the piece, you know. With and I know we'll come to Australia later, but you look at hmm. the strike rates of players who are thought to be attacking from other eras. Hmm. So I think Michael Slade is a perfect example of that, of someone who's thought to be attacking. And you look at his strike rate now; no one would call him attacking, right? Hmm. At that stage, he was still a little bit. He was still had an impact in the way that Michael Slater played. But looking back on it, you're just like, well, that's nothing. Whereas you look back on Viv Richards, and his strike rate was, you know, double what other top order players were of, of his era. And and I think from that perspective, it allowed people to understand what they could do. But the truth is, mate, mm. that no one did it in test cricket and no one even did it in one day cricket. He stands out with strike rate in both. And I think that he is certainly someone that when you look at his strike rate compared to other players of his era, it's impossible not to factor in that he had such a huge um, advantage over everyone else. I, I, I saw this spell... Mm. And he never made, this is a weird one about Viv Richards. He never made runs against Richard Hadley, right? Hmm. Uh, sorry, against West End, uh, New Zealand at all. I, I don't think it's a Richard Hadley right. thing. I haven't gone back to see how many times Hadley got him. But he just didn't have made runs against New Zealand, which is weird because he whacked everyone, right? But he, he really struggled against right. New Zealand. But this one game that was in New Zealand, and he goes in early and there's a, uh, Hadley's on one. He's taken a wicket and Viv Richards goes out. And I think Viv Richards hits him for four fours in that over, right? Hmm. And Hadley, the most immaculate line and length bowler we've ever seen, you can see him in shambles, right? He doesn't know what to do, right? Because this doesn't happen to Richard Hadley. And if you want to go forward years later, KP doing the same thing to Glenn McGrath, mm. right? Of, wait yeah. a minute, what? You know, and we saw Brian Lara do it to Shane Warne as well. When guys can score at that kind of rate against you, it completely mixes up all your your plans. And I think that you make a solid point that, you know, what Viv Richards did should have been influential, but I don't mm. think it is because the strike rates don't go up after that in, in any meaningful way. The only thing that really changes strike rates in Test cricket up until the basketball really and, and what Australia did in, in the late 90s, early 2000s is um, one-day cricket. Like I think there's a, bit of mm. a, there's a bit of a jump in one-day cricket. But I will just say this. If you do go back to strike rates, I think the strike rates in Trump's era were um, – that was one, one era. And I think it was up, a, up until World War One. There wasn't as much cricket being played, but in that, whatever it was, nine-year period um, before the war, mm. um, they actually scored, there was quite a few players, you know, because there was Sinclair and Jessup and Trumper, there was actually a slightly faster scoring era before. But realistically, it never stayed. And the reason is, is it is better to, if you want to make lots of runs in test cricket, it's better to be slightly defensive. That's been the truth for 
almost everyone except for a handful of people up until you know the last year and a half. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and that's quite interesting, actually. I would have never known that that would have happened right before the First World War. You spoke in your piece or wrote in your piece that Viv Richards might have been the first player ever to combine average with strike rate. Now, another guy who did this really, really well and also sits at the top of the pile for batters with minimum 3,000 test runs and, you know, highest strike rate. That is Virinder Sehwag. Yeah. And a lot of people have called this Sehwag ball, this and that. And anyone who's watched Sehwag play, I mean, they'll know exactly what they're talking about. Um, but again, he was the only player in that Indian team who was pretty yeah. much doing this up until maybe Dhoni came along and this and that. It wasn't a team of Sehwag. So it's still different to Basball. And I think he would have really enjoyed playing in this unit that Stokes and McCullum have built. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more interesting things for me is if you look at... Um, if you look at Sewag, uh, his style, it was very un-Indian, right? Vin hmm. Indian, India and Australia had become the two best test batting nations by the time Sewag could come along. And I mean that over a long period of time, you know. Um, hmm. Conditions play a big part in this. They're, you know, first, Especially first innings pitches in Australia and, and India really helped the local batters. Um, they're also, you know, uh, at, a, at a certain point, the I think it was in the 90s, you know, the average run per wicket in India was just absolutely off the chart and it wasn't just a home player so even the away players were at that point were doing really really well and it was a conservative place you know Sachin was even in one day cricket as exciting as he could be they weren't they weren't Sri Lanka right they weren't Gilchrist and Moore they were a different version of all that sort of stuff uh and it you know you've got Raul Dravid batting around you right like you know you you definitely have a position there where you are um, what's the best way of putting it? Um, everyone is thinking about making as many runs as possible. A hmm. And it, this bleeds into Sewag's white ball career because Sewag is seen as a white ball failure by a lot of people. And as I, I think if you hmm. go back with modern eyes, you'd be thinking he might've been one of the greatest players of white ball cricket ever because he scored at, he only averaged 30 to 35, whatever it was in, in one day cricket, but he did a strike rate that was ridiculous, but we didn't look at it that way back then everyone else was averaging 45 50 55 right so it was like he, he didn't work but for Sewag to do that in that era I think it's just you know it is it was a disruptive force and I do think hmm. that while the IPL obviously has had an impact on some of the other um, Indian players coming through I do think that it probably freed the minds of Indian batters but you, you mentioned MS Dhoni so Dhoni averages 38 in test cricket he was again hmm. Very good player. That scene is a failure because I think we thought he could have averaged deeper more. But his strike rate is 59, right? Hmm. And that is fine. That, I, I mean, a strike rate around 60 suggests that you are an above average, um, you know, uh, speed of scorer in test cricket. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't change the needle, right? It doesn't change yeah. the, the test. It's really, I, I've said this a lot, until you get to 70, 75, there isn't at that much of a, a difference between someone who score, uh, you know, strikes at fifty and fi and fifty five and fifty nine, right? There just isn't. You don't feel those runs once you get to hmm. you know sixty, sixty five, seventy. You're starting to get to the point where it's like you know you're scoring so much quicker than an average batter. You are starting to feel it. So for Sewag to come in and score well quicker than what someone like Dhoni did, and well quicker than everyone else, it was. I mean, I still remember the the innings in South Africa. I think it was at the Wanderers, where he's just slapping the ball everywhere. And you're just like, what even is this, right? And Gilchrist comes around at exactly the same time. And again, you're talking about two one-offs within the team. You are not talking hmm. about a whole team doing this. Yeah. And even if we move on to a more relevant comparison, of course, we've been talking about individual players thus far. But as you alluded to this earlier as well, I think it's the right time to bring it up. The Australian team of the early 2000s, they definitely played at a quicker rate than all other teams at that time. And, you know, they were striking it at over half a run more than the next best team in that era, which I think is quite commendable. And a lot of that was inspired by Adam Gilchrist because mm. he was gung-ho and he would come out and completely take the game away from you, much like Sehwag, but down the order. And the interesting part is that Gilchrist was the only batter in that entire team that was striking it at over 65, which I think is quite incredible because that changes everything, right? Like take Gilchrist out of that and maybe that Australian team as a whole would not be performing that same way. Whereas if you look at the Baz ballers, you know, Stokes and McCullum and their boys, they're striking it at just under five in this time period that they've, you know, been 
uh, a rejuvenated test unit. So I think that even though there is some sort of a comparison over there, would you say that like it's still very, very different uh, what Australia did in the early 2000s to what England are doing now? Yeah, so what Australia did, weirdly enough, the one thing I would say is that both mm. of them are inspired by one-day batting. You hear a lot mm. about, oh, England's, you know, baseball and T20. It's not really T20 if you look at it. What they're doing is very one-day inspired. And one-day cricket has mm. changed, right? So from that perspective, right. it makes sense. What Australia were doing around that period was, we'll take Gilchrist out. I'll explain Gilchrist in a minute because he is a very important facet of this. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it would have been different to do this with Ian Healy at number seven, who is a mm. fine chip it around sort of wicketkeeper and could counterattack, mm. but not Gilchrist. What they basically did was early on, they knew that the fields would be up, right? And I think this probably comes back to when Slater was in the side um, originally and he was, you know, uh, it, Slater would attack. And you did get, you know, Gordon Greenwich is another player, Keith Stackpole. There would be occasionally be a uh, Chris Shrekamp. There would occasionally be an opener that would come through mm. whose theory would be, well, when all the field's up, I'm going to throw the bat at it because I'll get a bunch of boundaries early mm. on. Then I'll be set, right? And then I can just bat normally. That, that was something that happened. But you, you could see those players would often slow down. So Australia took that on as a concept. You know, Langer wasn't really that kind of player. Australia kind of forced him into that role. He was an accidental opener uh, there. Mm -hmm. uh, Hayden, Hayden was more naturally like that. You know, you know big, strong guy, yeah. obviously. A bit like, you know, uh, someone like Zach Crawley. He could drive every ball that he wanted to drive just because he was so much taller than everyone else. Have you, he's been in Pakistan a lot. Have you ever stood next to Matt Hayden? I've never seen he's, Matt next to Matt Hayden, but yeah, he looks like a huge unit. Yeah, like he's put on a bit of weight recently, of course, but he's just big. He's just a big guy, and you know, if you, mm. you know, someone like KP, who's thought of as a tall batter, KP looks mm. tiny next to Hayden, right? So you really mm. start to understand that you know, Hayden, Clive Lloyd's another person I've worked with in commentary before, mm. and you like you sit, you stand, and this is like what seventy-five year old, eighty-year-old Clive Lloyd, and you're still like, this mm. is a big man, right? <laughs> you know, and so Hayden was one of those sorts of batters, which we don't see that many of, right? And, you know, so from that perspective, uh, you know, they had that start. Then they had Ponting coming in, right? So yeah. Ponting takes over at number three around that time. Ponting is a naturally attacking number three, you know, very Australian style number three. I'm going to put mm. my stamp on this game in the way that Bradman and, and Ian Chappell did. You know, that, that very much that, you know, Neil Harvey maybe as well. Maybe Harvey was a four. Hmm. But that sort of, you, you might be bowling well, but I'm going to come at you so that I can knock hmm. you off a little bit. Uh, you then have, you know, the, the middle order players that they had, you know, so it would have been uh, Steve Waugh at times, uh, Mark Waugh, um, uh, Damian Martin, those sorts of players. Darren mm -hmm. Lehman, I think, was in that era as well, who, who scored quite yeah. quickly. I mean, Michael Clark came about in, what, 2004? Yeah, so five, Michael Clark comes around yeah. that time. All of those guys, yeah. Fairly, they all have natural instincts. The only one who probably didn't was by that point in his career was Steve Waugh, although Steve Waugh was a really attacking player mm. when he was younger. Um, but all those players, again, have one-day games as well, right? So mm. they may not all be one-day stars, but they all have one-day games. And so the top order, what they basically do is they knock the field out, right? And then the rest mm -hmm. of the team, what they do is they try and score just a little bit quicker than they normally would by taking singles, by running hard, by being fitter than everyone else, because that's what they've done in 1987 to win the World Cup. Mm. And that's how the, their first revolution of one-day cricket is really through Australia, chipping the ball into gaps, taking on the sweepers, running twos when other teams are running ones, right? And, and dropping the ball at their feet mm. and taking singles. So Australia sort of take all that one-day stuff and go, there's actually not that much risk in this, right? We, mm. we should be able to score three singles and over without doing that much uh, trouble. And by rotating the strike, what we'll do is put the bowler off a little bit more. When the bad ball comes, we'll hammer that away. When they put the sweepers out, we will just hit the sweepers. And eventually, that's how England stop it, right? England starts mm. to put... It's hilarious how far things have changed. But Michael Vaughan <laughs> essentially invents sweepers, right? So mm. up until that point, it, you didn't really put a sweeper out unless the team was absolutely caning you. You know, like one for 250 and you're like, okay, we're going to have to put out a deep point. We'll have to put out, you know, a, another guy on the leg side. We might have to put out a third in those days, you know, those sorts of fielding positions. Whereas Michael Vaughan in 2005 goes, well, the minute they start to hit boundaries, let's just put the sweepers out because they want to keep being attacking at this point for a little while and we'll put pressure back mm. on them. They're going to have to make the decision. They're going to have to try and hit the ball harder or hit it to a different area they don't want to hit it to. So... It's a very, very clever strategy, and it comes about, Bayram, from essentially Australia 
were drawing test matches. And they were like, we are the best team in the world. Why are we drawing test matches? And it's really interesting going back to the West Indies. West Indies in the, you know, the 70s and 80s and early 90s, absolutely the best team in the world. Have a look how many draws mm. they played in. Right? And part of that mm. is their overrate because they were, they were taking like 17 yeah. hours to bowl and over at times. But um, a lot of it is that they couldn't work out how to crack this. And the Australians were very clever. They just went, okay, we're the best team. We're going to win the majority of games. But what we don't want to do is have a bunch of draws uh, where we're the better team and we don't get a result out of it. That's frustrating for us. So if we score a little bit quicker, that will actually help us. And that's where it comes from. And there is a bump. And other teams tried it but didn't really have the the players around to be able to do that. Now, Hmm. think about this. I remember asking uh, Darren Goff once, who's the toughest bowler, a batter to bowl against, right? And remember, Sachin, Ponting, Lara. Steve Waugh, uh, Inzi, like hmm. Dravid. You, you can go on and on. The players that he bowled against, you know, some of the greatest, hmm. um, you know, he would have bowled against Eunice Khan, right? All these guys. And he said it was Gilchrist. And I was hmm. like, right? Why? I said, because he couldn't have been the best batter. He said, no, but by the time you got to Gilchrist, you were in your second or third spell. The ball was probably... Um, you know, the ball was probably old or it was the second new ball, but you probably, you know, the, it wasn't brand new. So you weren't bowling to him ever with a brand new ball. Um, the, the, you know, the conditions had changed. It was probably sunny in the middle of the afternoon. You didn't get to bowl to him in the morning or anything. And he would take my best ball and whack it. And I didn't, hmm. you know, cause Goffey, for those who don't know, you know, not particularly tall, um, you know, more whacker Eunice style of bowler, you know, skiddier, hmm. fast. He didn't have a second ball to be able to bowl to Gilchrist. And so when Gilchrist came out, they were probably already scoring at around three and a half to four runs and over, right? So hmm. if every other team in the world scoring at one and a half to three runs and over, right, and they're scoring at, you know, three to three and a half to maybe even four and over, and then Gilchrist comes out and then they have 200 runs on the board, 250 runs on the board, 300 runs hmm. on the board, 400 runs on the board, Gilchrist just is a completely different force at at that point. And so they they got the absolute most out of Gilchrist. Not I think he could have batted up the order. I think he could have batted at six and and given Australia an all-rounder if they'd felt more comfortable about Ian Harvey or Shane Lee or, you know, one of those mm. sorts of all-rounders that were coming through. Um, you know, they could have picked those those sorts of guys, but they were just like, no, we have in McGrath, Gillespie, and Warren, we basically have three of the five best bowlers in the world at any one stage. And what we're going mm. to be doing at the other end is um, we'll pick whoever works for that particular surface. And when Gilchrist comes in, it's going to be when everyone is exhausted and he's going to tear them apart. So that's a very different from baseball, right? It's, it's mm. really, it's not so much attacking from uh, taking huge risks. What they did was when the field was up, they would slash through point. You know, they would flick the ball off their pads. They would make sure that, you know, that they, they would take away. They didn't want you to bowl to them with four slips and a gully and a short leg. They wanted you to bowl mm. to them with maybe one or two slips and a ring field, right? And mm. they thought once they had that, they could then every now and again, they'd still be able to pick up their singles and twos. And then a really bad ball, they'd be able to pierce the ring field. And they were right. And yeah. they may, you know, they, and they did start to win matches. After, I mean, they, they broke the world record for the most mm. wins in a row. Um, almost said it twice, I think, didn't they? Um, you know, so they did everything they wanted to do. But the way I've just explained that to you, I think is vastly different to what we're seeing with baseball. Yeah, no, absolutely. With baseball, you're seeing funky fields and reverse ramps, right? Yeah. And Joe Root playing those reverse ramps, would make, which makes it all the more extravagant. But I think uh, just to add to your points, especially on Gilchrist, I think Hobart 99 versus Pakistan is a very good example of, you know, the bowlers getting tired out and then Gilchrist going berserk. And uh, Waz himself, I think he rates Martin Crow as the best batter that he's ever bowled to. But I think Gilchrist is up there as well. And even though he's gotten him quite a few times, but still... Uh, Wasim has a lot of, uh, you know, he keeps Gilchrist in a lot of high regard. Yeah, so just you were just saying. on those. No, no, no. I just want to add to what you're saying. Mm. So those two, fir- those two first innings is really, really interesting. Mm. What happens? He comes out and he makes. I want to say 79 or 80 in that first game. Shoab gets in with an mm. incredibly fast Yorker. I think that was at the Gabba. Mm. They go down to Hobart, and Pakistan is in that game and in front of that game for you know huge mm. periods of time. They end up sending Australia. Was it 290 odd? Do you remember the the total? Something like yeah. that. And it, I've only seen highlights. I was five. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and Australia Australia <laughs> lose five wickets early on. 
But Gilchrist, this is what comes back to that fast scoring mentality because it's a really important mm. point. And, and remember I said, sweepers didn't really exist in those days, right? The, mm. One of my favorite innings is the Garfield Sobers one where he makes 260 or 250-odd at, um, at the MCG. And it just takes so long for them to put everyone out on the boundary. Whereas as a modern cricket fan, you're just <laughs> like, oh my God, he's clearly going to hit yeah. everything to backward point. All right, he's going to pull everything and he's going to flick some balls to wide men on. Just put out three guys mm. and he will have to play mm. differently. It takes it forever. Anyway. So the Gilchrist, what Wazim Akram does is Gilchrist scores at such a high rate in that first test that even though Pakistan is well on top in that second test and should win that game easily, uh, in fact, maybe they were chasing 350. Yeah, I think they needed about two. Yeah, I think it I was think they needed, something over 300 yeah, maybe. Two, they needed around 200 runs, I think, when at five wickets down. So traditionally, you would lose that game. Wasim yeah, completely now. shits to bed on that, right? Because he just puts everyone mm. out. And what he does is, without thinking, he basically gives Gilchrist a one-day field. Um, and Gilchrist was a one-day player. It would have been much better off to actually give Gilchrist a test match field and put pressure on him a completely different way. But hmm. why does he do that? Because no, they hadn't come up against the Gilchrist before, right? Hmm. There's, no there's no one really between Viv Richards Gilchrist and Sewag that scores that mm. way. That doesn't mean there weren't attacking players, but there were players who would come out from ball one and be willing to hit you for four and six, right? That just wasn't yeah. a thing that, that we had in cricket beforehand, right? It, you know, it's why Ben Stokes has set the record for the most sixes. It's why, you know, Chris Gale has mm. the record for the, the sixes off the first ball. It, it, it's why Sewag and Gilchrist have these incredible strike rates and why Baz Ball is happening now. These things don't happen that often. And that is a perfect example there of Gilchrist completely messing with the minds of the Pakistani mm. players because yeah. he was so explosive and so powerful and they didn't think about him as a normal test batter, right? And they were bowling beautifully. You know, they were on top in that game. Pakistan should have won that game. Justin Lang and Nick behind him was given not out. So that, that yeah. obviously plays a big part in it. But Gilchrist makes like 150, right? 147. Yeah. And I just checked. They, they scored 300, or well, they were chasing 369. They got there. And while Gilchrist came out to bat when Australia were five down for 120-odd, they still needed more than 240 runs. So, I mean, that is amazing. 240, was But it? still. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, 240 from that point on. Yeah. It's, it was and, a ridiculous and chase. And I remember being so confident from the moment was put the field out. The minute mm. he put the field out, I remember te texting my friends. It was at the birth of mobile phones was around that era. You know, we, all, we all had mobile <laughs> I was phones. Say. Yeah. And I remember texting my friends going, because they were like, game over. I went, I don't think so. I think Pakistan might have fucked mm. up here. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, the optimism of that compared to what I then saw was, you know, mm. uh, uh, you know, that was a little bit of fanboying or whatever. But you could see that he had changed the way that they were thinking about things. And, and so it was, that is still, everything we've just said is still very, very different to what basketball is. I mean, just the proof that you put down in your piece that 26 times in history has, has a team scored 300 plus runs in a test innings at a run rate of over five. And out of those 26 times, seven have been by England's Baz Ballers, which is phenomenal. And this Australian team that we're talking about, they only have one of those scores versus Zimbabwe. And I mean, there's so much more to this, right? I've obviously, you know, taken note of the baseball shuffle ever since you pointed out in your piece. And a few people have said that, oh, but this is not new. People have been batting outside the crease for millennia or whatever. And this is something that Javid used to do or XYZ used to do. But hey, this is being done en masse, not That's just by the English boys. You've seen these tactics by the Australians as well. Khwaja was baseball or had employed the baseball shuffle at one point. Mitch Marsh was doing it. And the keepers are coming up to the stumps early on in the innings versus guys who are bowling 85 to 88 miles per hour. This is revolutionary. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Well, let's I, let's bring all this back together because what you just said hmm. is, is very good. So Java mean that did use the crease really well, right? Hmm. He was an absolute genius at using the crease. And do you know how I know that? Because people talk about how well he used the crease. 
That tells me that yeah. everyone else wasn't using the crease like Jeff had been done. Hmm. Right? Because Absolutely. right now, as you, you've just like named seven people. You could put Daryl Mitchell, you could put Tom Blundell hmm. in there, you could put most of Pakistan's top order in there at the moment. They're yeah. all doing it, right? Two years hmm. ago, no one was leaving the crease, right? It was really right. rare to do that. And if you did bat out of your crease, it was because you were a player who batted out of their crease. It wasn't because you were a player who would then bat out of the crease and bat back in their crease and you wouldn't walk down the wicket. Who would walk down the wicket in Test Cricket? And that goes back to the Gilchrist thing. I remember, Bayram, watching mm. was put those fielders out, right? <laughs> I couldn't believe it mm. because who puts fielders out on the boundary when a guy first comes to the wicket? That didn't happen. Yeah. That wasn't something that happened in, in Test Match Cricket in 1999. Mm. If they started to hit some boundaries, maybe you might get that. If they were slogging. Certainly that would happen. But not just when they first came out. There's a big difference between, and, and this goes back to the whole baseball phenomenon, because this goes back mm. to Sewag. Sewag playing attacking shots is not baseball. That's yeah. Sewag just being Sewag, right? That's Viru. Well, I mm -hmm. shouldn't say it. I should do it in how Viru would say it. You know, Viru hit ball, right? Like that's yeah. how he played, right? That is a big difference between an entire side. Like one of mm. my favorite things is Alex Lee's. Alex Lee's could barely hit the ball off the square when he came to test cricket, right? And Baz had him going for it, right? Everyone yeah. was going for it, right? That's a huge change um, from just having naturally aggressive players or even doing what Australia did, which was a very controlled attacking style of we will do this, then we will get on top, then we'll get on a roll, and then we'll throw Gilly in the end and he'll destroy worlds, right? That's a very different yeah. system. And, and, what we are seeing now is whether it be the baseball shuffle, whether it be just mm. baseball batting in general, whether we see the way that England rotate through their plans. You know, when I I, I covered England in 2010, 2011, Swan, Anderson, Broad, Tremlett, Bresnan, they would just bowl dry, right? They would bowl dry for hours, Bayram, if they had to, mm. right? They would control mm. the game for as long as possible over and over and over again. And then eventually they'd um, attack when they took a wicket or two, and then they would try and get back into the game. Mm. Ben Stokes doesn't keep plans for more than about five overs now, right? Yeah. This is it. This is all the way through their game, and they've now got more plans. I I, I think I put a checklist. Might have been might not have been in that article. Might have been in the one the day before. That checklist, and they've got micro versions of that. I could you know <laughs> do a more specific thing. They are just going okay. Plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. And when they get to the bottom, they just mm. press repeat and they go back to the start again, right? <laughs> this is not how cricket is traditionally played. Like, you know, West Indies would, you know, I mean, if you go back to that great Australian team we're talking about, Steve Ward just kept five slips in. That mm. was his big, his big attacking move was not taking slips out, right? The West yeah. Indies, right? They basically, West Indies had two modes, back of a length and bounces, right? They didn't really try that much else, right? They didn't ever try and get you to drive because they didn't want you to drive, right? They wanted to have their, their catches in the position they wanted. They wanted to protect their leg side boundary when they needed to and all that sort of stuff. Everything that e England is doing is, is built on things that other teams have done, right? So the baseball yeah. shuffle does come from Javid Minda, right? Hmm. Uh, playing across the line and taking a, a, a risk a calculated risk based on where the fielder is comes from Victor Trumper, right? Mm. All these things are built up. And, and, and to give you the perfect analogy, it, it's like when music fans like in the 90s were suddenly like, wow, Nirvana have come through. And Nirvana, have, you know, we've never had a band like Nirvana before. And it's like, well, let's just slow down. Nirvana comes out of this sort of grunge era, right? There are mm -hmm. other bands like Nirvana around at the moment. They're just not as good as Nirvana. But Nirvana doesn't mm. exist without the Pixies. And you listen to the Pixies, right. and the Pixies say they don't exist without the Beatles. And the Beatles say they don't exist without rhythm and blues music, right? All these things have to come before you. But that doesn't mean that when you listen to Nirvana and you listen to the Beatles, that Nirvana isn't just a, an altogether different experience. And, you know, it doesn't mean that one's better than the other because you, the Australian team that we were just talking about is still better than this English team. And I can't see yeah. any way that this English team is going to end up being as good as the Australian team or the West Indian team, right? They've just drawn a series mm. at home against, against a good team, don't yeah. get me wrong, but they've just drawn a series at home, right? Have a look at Australia and the West Indies in, in their areas, right? 
Mm-hmm. There weren't any anything like that. So that's not to say they were invincible. Exactly. That's both of those teams just absolutely invincible, right? And so mm-hmm. you know you you have that situation where people don't always look back, and it's important to look back and go actually what they are building on. And what they are coming up with, you know, there are building blocks all the way through that has led us to this this theory. But also, it is really important to remember that this has never been done before, right? That this is yeah. actually new, right? Yes, Trump played his part and, and Viv maybe played his part. And, you know, clearly Saywag and Gilchrist and McCullum himself all played a part. But even mm-hmm. so... McCullum didn't do this with his own teams. And the reason is yeah. that this is a specific team where he was given the freedom because of how shit England were before, right? They were just mm. so terrible. He was given the freedom to essentially go, what are we good at? We're good at whacking the ball. Let's whack the ball. Let's have seven McCullums, right? And it's not quite mm. seven McCullums. I'll explain why in a moment. But essentially, let's, let's have, you know, five or six disruptors in every batting lineup, mm. which means that the bowlers can't settle. And Ollie Pope mm. does it by running down the wicket. And Zach Crawley does it by driving on the up. And Ben Duckett does it by not leaving. They're not all the same. They're, mm. you know, all, all slightly different different ways of doing it. And But what you yeah. actually need within that is then one superstar batter who can carry you through. And that was the thing they mm. had from before, which is Joe Root. And all mm. they've done to Joe Root is they've just taken him from test Joe Root to middle overs Joe Root, Right. And I remember there were times when Joe Root was averaging 60 in the middle overs in one-day cricket, right? Well, hmm. that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? His ability to score yeah. to run a ball without taking risks that a normal human would have to take is... Can you think of anyone who's ever done it as well as Joe Root in the history of the game? How to run a ball without taking risks i don't know if there's ever been anyone else like uh virat's great but virat's usually slightly slower mm-hmm. than a runner ball steve smith again slightly mm-hmm. slower kane yusuf was good hey muhammad yusuf was a good rotator strike yeah um, uh, what was what do you think his um strike rate would have been though in the middle overs fairly like i reckon it would have been a, maybe more than 60 yeah i re- i reckon it would have been slow right i reckon it would have been hmm. not not slow slow but i reckon it would have been at best around 65 70 you know, 75. Mm. Whereas that's what I'm saying. It's the runner ball bit that I don't mm. think we've ever seen anyone. And remember, England had kind of had three of them, really, because they had Owen Morgan. They also had Dawid Milan, who's not even as talented as the other two, yeah. but even he managed to do it. And you throw Joe Root into that, and then you've got Crawley um, and Duckett, which left-hand, right-hand, height disparity, the way they score could not be more different batters it's phenomenally different yeah. right like i mean the langer hayden one was a brilliant one for, for a similar sort of thing but langer and hayden mm. were at least both left-handers so you could eventually get into a yeah. rhythm against them um you, you know you've got ollie pope probably being the quickest player to run down the wicket you know that maybe one of the most nimble mm. with his feet against seam bowling that we've ever seen from from that mm. point of view you know then you've got Ben Stokes, who brings his own problem. Harry Brook, who mm. hits the ball in areas that, you know, test players don't usually hit the ball in. You know, Johnny Bairstow, who yeah. once he gets on a roll, you know, then you've got, uh, you know, Wokes and Moeen and maybe Sam Curran when he comes back in and all these. Mm. There's just so many little problems there. There still isn't great batters in that lineup, right? Yeah. I've watched Zach Crawley in the last month be incredible. I haven't thought to myself, Zach Crawley is better than he was two years ago. There's still huge flaws yeah. within that. But what are they doing? They're maximizing what Zach Crawley can do. And and that's what it is really about. And it's such a fascinating um, thing. And I just want to talk about the baseball shuffle very quickly because someone sent me an email. Mm. I, I think it was a former cricketer um, sent me an email mm. recently saying that uh, the player, the England players are getting away with running down the pitch uh, because Richard Pant obviously was told he couldn't do it um, in a game. And... Uh, I don't think this person knew, but Keaton Jennings also got told off for taking his guard down. Modern players, are th- they're thinking about this so much now. They actually know where they can go. And partly that is down to what mm. happened to Rashad Punt and what happened to Keaton Jennings. So they've had these conversations. That's how methodical they're being. They're taking guard in a position that won't get them into the danger zone. And when they are running down the pitch, if you have a look at someone like Ollie Pope, he quite often when he runs a long way down the pitch, he tries to get sort of outside the line of the ball. That's partly for LBWs. And Ben Stokes does mm. that as well. But it's also because they know if they run down the middle of the pitch, they'll get done for running on the wicket. So mm. there is, that's how clever this all is at the moment. 
Um, and, you know, to bring this all back, we we had a bunch of years where the, the, the average against pace bowling was 25, 26, 27, 28. Hmm. It's 34 at the moment, right? This yeah. isn't just England now. Everyone's worked out how to, how to combat the wobble ball after years. But England are doing it in a way that is something else. And we're already starting to see Zimbabwe in, in one-day cricket. Mm. We're already starting to see Pakistan. And Bangladesh might be the, the biggest one, right? Bangladesh mm. have two really fast innings. Um, I, I had a look at this. There's a website. I can't remember the name of it. And there's a website. And all it does is track. Well, one of the main things it tracks is the fastest hundreds ever by a player by country. I found it the other day when I was mm. looking for all those stats. And it's really fascinating because, you know, it, it, it has a, lot, a page of everyone who's made a, a hundred in test cricket are better than a runner ball, right? And mm. for each country, and you can click on it. Well, Bangladesh, there was hardly any, right? It's, <laughs> and you're looking at it now going, they might have three or four more of those guys in, in the next little right. while. And they won't be able to do it against the better teams all the time. <clears throat> but you're going to... They're going to probably try it against Zimbabwe. May not work because of the quality of that bowling. They've already done it against Afghanistan. They've already done it against Ireland. They might do it against Sri Lanka if they feel the matchups work for them. I -hmm. thought the biggest problem with all this is that England have Joe Root and that they their white ball hitters were so much better than everyone else's, it was harder to replicate. Having seen the shuffle and having seen... Mm. um, Pakistan, I think, is more, the other more interesting one of playing to their strengths. Mm. I now get why a lot of teams could probably not replicate it, but have their own versions of it. If you right. go back, I'm not sure that was possible when Australia did it. I'm not mm-hmm. sure at that stage on the kinds of wickets that we were playing on that you could that, that you could hurry up Curly Ambrose, right? That you could yeah. um, that you could you know sc- take on Wasim Akram, right? Now. Hmm. it would be fascinating to see what we did do and maybe Gilchrist proved that you could do it and we were all turning a blind eye to it and we thought he was a one-off but the point is that these things have changed quite a bit and the game itself has changed and has allowed England to do that but that doesn't mean that you can't give England their flowers because oh my god if you look at the run rate you know uh, of them compared to world cricket at the moment we've never seen a rise like this no, you definitely need to give them their flowers. And I think a lot of people struggle with that, right? People would They're have England. a problem with people coining it as, or you coining it as the baseball shuffle because now it has the word baseball in it and people are probably sick of it. And I mean, there's the whole narrative going on. So maybe there's some just, you know, they don't want to give England that credit, but the truth is that they have uh, revolutionized or are revolutionizing Test Cricket. No, that's a really good and point. I wanted, the, so when hmm. I wrote my book on Test Cricket, hmm. from, I can't remember, it must be from when the the... the they had an era in the early 50s where they had a lot of cutter bowlers, right? And mm. then from about 1960 until 2010, England are just not a factor in test cricket, right? If mm. you look at the narrative, they don't invent anything, right? Mm. West Indies, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, New Zealand, Australia, all these different teams have great eras and flare-ups and invent things and move the game forward and, you know, um, you know, have your Saywags and your Gilchrists and your Kapil Devs mm. and all these different fascinating sorts of things. England basically has Boycott, which was, which was a fantastic player, um, Botham, right? Mm. And then they have a lot of good players that don't really change the needle in Test Cricket. Alex Stewart could have but failed as a wicketkeeper batter. He could have had the same impact that Gilchrist did, but he just, every time he had mm-hmm. the gloves on, he couldn't make a run, right, so, sadly. So mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't work. Because they did try, England did try to change wicketkeeping batting twice before anyone else ever did, mm. right? So if you look at my book on the history of Test Cricket, the unauthorized biography, probably not available anywhere, mm-hmm. but if it is, go find it. If you look at my book, you'll realize that England just fade out, right? They just fade mm-hmm. out of cricket. And... So when they come back in 2010-11 and they have what is a very good era, but a very short, very good era, and they go mm. over and they go over the top because England cricket hasn't been important for so long. They get really excited. Mm. I think that's a natural like, what? South Africa were just good for seven years and you guys barely gave them any credit. And you you've had like two good years and you think suddenly you're brilliant. And you've already and it's already fallen apart anyway. You know, your wicket keeper can't walk mm. anymore. Your your spinner's elbow is buggered <laughs> and Jonathan Trotz disappeared, right? And and Strauss as well. Like yeah. they lost a lot of good players and it, they couldn't replicate it, right? Mm. Then you have then you have this white ball revolution where for what? 2016, 2017, 2018. 
all those years, all everyone ever talks about is England white ball cricket. And what do they win? Fuck all. Right? They fail at every <laughs> single hurdle. Now, people yeah. like me and Freddie Wilde, and, and, and we're like, guys, you have to trust this. What they're doing is so much better mm. than everyone else. But if you're a normal cricket fan, you're like, stop talking about this team that can't play at big tournaments. Every time we see them at a big yeah. tournament, they don't do particularly good. We're not particularly interested, right? And, and, and so I think there is this, I think there is this thing of, this is short, right? We're talking about the Australian period that, that I map uh, with the, if we just go straight rates of six years, but realistically, the Australian mm. period of dominance is 12 years, right? And the West Indies period is what's uh, 19 years, 17 years, right? Mm. This isn't going to last that long, right? One way or another, something's going to happen. Either that, if everyone does mm. it and someone else does it better or all these players age out, it's a bloody old team, right? You know, and we're not sure about all the young players. And we've already had one disappear. A couple more could go and everything else. And and I understand that. Plus, the way the English media works, the way that the the cricket media works between Australia, India, and England, mm. I think you always. I think every fan in the world automatically hears, "Oh, there's a good young player from England." Me, me and uh, Barrett have talked about this. Oh, Harry Brooks really good. Okay, we're going to move him to here, right? Shubman Gill, we're going to move him <laughs> to here. It's not that we yeah. don't think these guys are good. It's just that we're going to wait for them to be really good. Right. Whereas mm. actually there are really good players from around the world that are really good that no one will talk about. Right. <laughs> and mm. so th that's how we do things. And I think there's a lot of fans who feel that way. All of that is and this before we get to colonization and all the other nonsense mm. and spirit of cricket. Right. 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 Moral ashes. Moral ashes, all that sort of stuff. That. I understand <laughs> all of that as someone who is, you know, uh, is an Australian who's is thrust in, who writes about the global game. And is you know, mm. not as much these days, but in the old days, terminally online sort of person, right? But <laughs> where, but right at the moment, you can't look at what they're doing and not mm. put it into the proper context. And pretending that like one off guy did it or that Australia did this before or anything else, it's yeah. fundamentally not true. And and there's so much more to it, right? It's not just the attacking cricket and well, high risk cricket, which by the way has is starting to come to them as second nature now. When Joe Root reverse ramps, it seems like a safe shot. And I actually asked Ben Duckett when he was reverse sweeping a lot in Pakistan that, you know, uh, when you play the reverse sweep, do you think of it as a high-risk shot? And he said, it's like forward defense for yep. me. So what they're doing is infectious. We're seeing the impact it's having, not just with the attacking cricket, but with the shuffle, of course. And uh, you mentioned Pakistan. They played with a bucket load of intent versus Sri Lanka, very differently to how they used to play, well, maybe a couple of years back. India went absolutely ballistic in one oh, yeah, innings versus that. the West yeah, Indies. The fastest ever yeah. score over 250 in Test cricket history, I think. Something like that. Uh, no, I think they had declared at 180 or something. Oh, like was that, that. Was, uh, maybe it was the I'm, fastest score over 35 overs or something. Whatever it was, it yeah, was the yeah. fastest score that they'd ever had before, yeah. Yeah, and, and you quoted Bangladesh as well. So you add the funky feels to this and all those different ideas that Ben Stokes has and it's always changing with England. I mean, there's so much more to this story. Basketball is not just attacking cricket and it's impacting cricket in different ways that you, actually, in your piece, mentioned that West Indies playing four quicks in the 70s and 80s, that might have been the most disruptive thing to ever happen to test cricket. Do you think basketball trumps that? That's a really interesting question because I remember when basketball first started, my biggest thought was... I didn't think other people could replicate it, right? Hmm. And that's the thing with the four fast bowlers. Great. That's a great idea. We should all do that. Oh, we don't have four fast bowlers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it's all well and good to say, oh, what we should do is, you know, uh, pick Joel Garner and Malcolm Marshall and Annie Roberts and, Kurt, uh, you know, Kurtley and Courtney and uh, Ian Bishop and all the, you know, Sylvester Clark and Colin Croft. Well, when you've got, look at, listen to the names I've just said, right? Like, I always say that, you know, the West Indies assistant coach, Roddy Eswick, Never got anywhere near the test team and has a first-class bowling average of 21, right? Like, hmm. these guys were ridiculous. And I, I thought that the thing, that, why that changed cricket so much is, is it, it, it and it correlates with the, the helmet era, although they, they were a big hmm. part of why people got helmets quicker, but that was also, you know, Australia had started to do that and even England had started to bowl more bounces at that point. But it correlates with the harder pitch era, the helmet era, um, and hmm. cricket goes from a swing seam bowling to seam and the lengths completely change and the way that you attack when you're bowling completely changes so that if you watch cricket in the 80s and 90s it didn't look like cricket in the 50s and 60s right and 
if you, from that point of view, West Indies change everything. So Glenn McGrath, right? Stuart Broad, you know, uh, Mornay Morkel, all these guys come out of that West Indies school, even if they don't know that they come out of that. Andy Caddick, right? Because hmm. you do, you go from these sort of pitch up Matthew Hoggard type bowlers to these back of the length uh, kind of bowlers. And so that changes everything. It make, makes batting a lot more of a, uh, a physical task, right? Because you're now facing bowlers that are, you know, in the old days you were facing guys who didn't have to be that fast because they were swinging the ball so much. Now everyone's yeah. fast, right? So you've got the courage aspect goes up. Facing multiple mm. bounces goes up, all that. That is a huge, huge change. But Australia didn't pick four Glenn because they still couldn't find four mm. Glenn McGrath. Because of T20 cricket, because of one-day cricket, because of the franchise structure of everything, I do wonder if it is slightly more replicable for other teams than yeah. I originally did. As I said, originally I was like, yeah. England's the best white ball team in the world. It makes sense for them to play red ball cricket in a white ball style. It, it also comes down to player utilization. Like England have those exactly. players who can go at that rate. Other teams may not, but again, like Pakistan, you've got a lot of these guys who can play run a ball That's, and play risk-free cricket it, for, you know, at, at a good Exactly, rate. and I think that was the bit, I, I think when we first saw it, we and everyone did hmm. this, myself included, we were sort of more thinking T20. Whereas now I'm looking at going, well, Rizwan, and 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 Babar Azam could be the best baseball players outside of England <laughs> because they should be able to just bat forever at runner ball because they do bat yeah. forever at runner ball, right? <laughs> and and you know uh, Safraz would be another one, Sean Masood could be another one, and you're just like, well, wait a minute, mm. now they've got four guys, right? And they could bring in some attacking, uh, you know, young, you know, Harris could come in or you know whatever, you know, just go, mm. okay, we'll throw Harris into the mix of that and see what he does, and you know, he goes ballistic or whatever, or whoever else is is you know in that sort of play. Hmm. And I think that's the bit that I didn't see coming. So from that point of view, it might be a, it might be that it is a bigger impact on world cricket because more teams can try it and be successful at it. And I think watching Test Cricket right at the moment, if you look at, as I said, Bangladesh, India, um, Pakistan, and England, and I think Zimbabwe will probably try and play the same way if they can. I don't know how many Test matches they've played recently on good pitches, but mm. I think they'll try and play a similar way, listening to how Dave Houghton's been talking. That's five teams who are going to go for it, right? Mm. Um, if that's the case and we see that, then that will be a bigger shift than what the West Indies did. However... I th still think, you know, that generally the, the shift that the West Indies did was maybe more dramatic in changing the game from one style of cricket to another. But I don't know. Mm. It, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting um, uh, question that you asked because uh, we, in those days, things changed slowly because things changed slowly, right? So, so for instance, you know, I, I think I might have written about this in the Stuart Broad piece, but the birth of the wrongen is really interesting. And we, uh, sadly, we can't hmm. go back and, uh, well, I, I might be able to do it with maybe someone like Crickviz or um, hmm. uh, Stats, but I'd love to go back and see what the wrongen did because essentially, you know, a very quick story here. A English person invents the wrongen. He's got a friend who's English who goes off to play cricket in South Africa. He teaches four of his club teammates, uh, well, sorry, provincial hmm. teammates, and some of them were club players, uh, how to bowl the wrongen. Right, Aubrey Faulkner is one of them, uh, but there's you know there's four of them all together. Uh, Reggie Swartz is the guy's name, and they win their first ever series, having never won a series before. Where I think a huge percentage of the wickets were taken by leg spin slash the wrong end. Hmm. It gets to the point at which people in their 1920s start to talk poorly of the wrong end because it's ruining cricket, right? <laughs> but it, this takes ages. I think it. I think it takes seven years for the uh, for the south africans to bowl it and for about seven or eight years it's one english person bowling it right hmm. if that happened now look at the wobble ball that was even that was even before the kind of youtube -y era that we now live in and and the, in the close-up highlights yeah. era that essentially takes about four years to start to spread and seven years to completely take over the game and change the way that everyone bowls right hmm. the the knuckleball was even quicker right and, you know, yeah. the leg cutter was another really fascinating one in T20 cricket. These things happen so quickly that you'll go from, I'll turn up at a T20 tournament the year later and I'll have all these notes on these players and they'll, I've changed all their slow balls.
Yeah, if you go to the early 2000s, remember when the back of the hand slower one became a really popular delivery? It took time. It wasn't very, very quick, right? Would like, you want to know when that started? Start see when did that start? Was it Steve Wolf? No, it wasn't Steve Wolf. Simon no. O'Donnell. So Simon O'Donnell okay. comes into the Australian team around 1984, 85. 84, mm. 85, wow. Bayram, right? And you're right. <laughs> well, there it, you have it. It takes about 10 to 15 years to hmm. push its way through the entirety of the game. Um, if, if the, favorite, the best one is probably the Dusra. There's an Australian hmm. cricketer who bowls the Dusra in the 60s. Right, and hmm. who would he? No, I did not yeah, know that. Um, oh God, I've got. To, he was an Oxford cricket coach for years, um, and hmm. he was a part. He was a part timer, and Richie Benno was saying to him, "What are you doing? Forget about your batting. <laughs> you can bowl off spin and this other ball that no one else could ever bowl before." Right? This guy didn't even. Hmm. It didn't even do anything with it. Right? And hmm. it's the same with we've got we've got cases of the reverse sweep happening. I think in the late eighteen hundreds. Right? Hmm. Things took a long time to to blend through the game, right? And now yeah. it's like, I, I'm literally, I'm writing notes of how England are batting differently in the crease. And by the time I've looked it up, Pakistan are doing it. Yeah. Right? It's that quick now. And it's only, and, and that's what is happening over and over again. And so from that perspective, even if the England um, changes aren't as dramatic as what the West Indians did uh, with, with mm. how they changed cricket, it could be far quicker and more widespread just because that's how the game works now. Yeah. I mean, there is, of course, that narrative that England themselves have pushed so much so that people have gotten sick of it that England are saving test cricket. Yeah. Well, they might that's not the be bit, saving I think it's okay cricket. to make fun of them for that, though, right? Yeah, yeah if, for I mean, sure. For, and they might not if you're be... losing a fucking test match and going on about how you played the better cricket, <laughs> no one gives a shit, mate. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely Because you, your job is to win the game and... As I've just said, in a couple of years, everyone will change. And this is the other thing I would say. Between 2019 and 2022, we had some of the greatest test matches ever played. Uh, there was some great mm. cricket. You know, Border Gavaska Trophy was played in that uh, period, right? There was some fantastic... Yeah. We had uh, the Kusel innings. We had the Stokes innings. Mm. Well, uh, Stokes in 2019 wasn't saving test cricket, but Harry Brook flapping <laughs> around at short balls is. Come, let's, just, <laughs> let's just pump the brakes on that a little bit, right? Um, and yeah. I think it's okay to m make fun of them. But sorry, I, I, I completely stood on you there. No, no, no. I mean, I was just going to end things by saying that the moral of the story over here is that they might not be saving Test Cricket, but they are introducing a new genre to it. They have made it more entertaining and they are having an impact. So the revolution is very much on because it's impacting different teams in different ways. And you can't just ignore baseball and shit on it because you don't like England. That's not fair. And I guess that's a good place to end this, I suppose, Jared, because we've gone way over time. But I mean, it's just one of those topics, I suppose. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. We'll be back next week with Footmarks episode 12. We hope that you like this one. Thank you for your time as well, Jared. That'll be all for now. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orajoti Sainapayu and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.